Father, please, according to your loving kindness and mercy, please give us hearts that would receive your word today. Please cause the name of Jesus to be revered in our hearts and magnified in this gathering. And Lord, help us to be faithful stewards of your word and your promises. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, if you're joining us for the first time, you've come right at the end of our series in the letters to the churches. So this is in Revelation 2 and 3. And uh, we've gone through uh, six of the seven churches. So to give a bit of a recap, uh, when we have gone through these churches, we've seen how uh, they give a broad picture of the um, spectrum of faithful and unfaithful churches. And in um, each of the churches, there's aspects that we could probably see in our own life and perhaps churches that we have heard of that uh, maybe um, have a little bit too close of a similarity to some of these churches here. And we have hopefully examined our own hearts in that, realizing that we probably um, have similarities ourselves. So the church at Ephesus was this first church in the group, and they are like the church that is passionate about doctrine and they love Bible studies. They love debating over theological topics. Um, they you know, hold things like uh, theological debates on Calvinism and Arminianism for fun, and they just kind of are really saturated in the word, but they have abandoned their first love. So Jesus rebukes them and says, you have uh, forsaken the love you had at first, so repent. So while they were concerned about the inner purity, they had actually neglected love for God and love for neighbor and actually showing that to others. The church of Smyrna, the second church, is one of the two faithful churches in this group. And we saw how they were an impoverished, weak community. Uh, they were struggling, yet Christ says, actually, you are rich. Well done and keep persevering, keep holding on. And then Pergamum and Thyatira were the third and fourth, and they had similarities uh, that were actually kind of the opposite of the church of Ephesus. So Pergamum and Thyatira were actually commended by Jesus for their outer witness for their faithfulness in holding fast his name, but they had both neglected the inner purity and they had allowed false teaching and immorality to pervade their community, causing the people in there to actually commit sexual immorality and idolatry. And so Jesus calls them to repent. And then we get to the fifth church, Sardis, which is this church that had a great reputation among those outside. Maybe they had some notable uh, members of their church. They'd done a few good things for the community. They had a reputation in the community of being alive, but Jesus says, you are dead. This is like the, one of the worst things that you could hear from Jesus is actually, you are dead. You think you're alive, but you're dead. And then Philadelphia, the sixth church is the second faithful church. There are two faithful churches in this group. And we saw last week how they were yet another frail community kind of struggling. And Christ commends them and gives them these words of comfort and calls them to persevere. And now we get to Laodicea, which is like the church you do not want to be like. So they receive no commendation. 
even um, uh, Sardis, um, who was like, sorry, Smyrna, um, was the church that were told that they were dead. Even they, at least Jesus says, you are dead, yet you have some among you who have not soiled their garments. So there's some there, but with Laodicea, there's no commendation. Jesus explains to the church that their works are neither cold nor hot. Instead, they are lukewarm. So they are something very unpleasant. They are actually unpalatable to Jesus Christ. They are intolerable. And he says, I spit you out of my mouth. And it's not like the word isn't like if you kind of get a fly in your mouth and you spit it out, which is gross in and of itself. This word is actually like vomiting, to vomit. He vomits them out of his mouth. And this is quite confronting because we kind of have this idea of meek and mild Jesus would never do such a thing, right, to this so-called church so that, you know, he, he can't even bear them. He can't tolerate them. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be lukewarm and at risk of actually being vomited out of the mouth of Jesus? And today we're going to look at this through three questions. And we're going to take verses 15 and 19, kind of the middle chunk, to ask these three questions and help us understand what it means to be lukewarm. And then we'll finish by giving two responses. And they will be from the introductory words that Jesus gives in verse 14 and then the concluding words in verses 20 to 22. So we'll kind of take the middle chunk first, and then we'll finish with the first and the last bit. So the first question is um, from verses 15 and 16. What, what does this idea of being lukewarm mean? Like, what does this actually mean? From verse 15, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So to be lukewarm in this sense is to not be a faithful church. To be lukewarm is to be deceived and not actually Christian. It's a very serious thing. As I said, even Sardis kind of had this commendation slightly from Jesus, like, well, at least there's some of you who haven't soiled your garments, whereas Laodicea doesn't receive any of that. There's no commendation. Jesus is actually saying, you are repugnant to me. And so there is no such thing, if you've ever heard it said before, as a lukewarm Christian, that's an oxymoron. Could you imagine Jesus vomiting out one of his own? There's a loving discipline, but he wouldn't vomit out one of his own. So this idea of a lukewarm Christian is, is an oxymoron. This is actually saying here, this, this is an unsaved community, an unregenerate community. Now, with the idea of Jesus being physically sick over people, we have to distinguish between those who profess to follow Christ and those who don't. So there are, there, there are those who profess to follow Christ yet are not actually following him. They are just giving him lip service, wanting perhaps the gifts without the giver of the gifts, wanting the kingdom without the king. So there are those who are professing to follow Christ, but are not, they're just giving him lip service, and they are those who are repugnant to Jesus. Whereas there are those 
we know who don't profess to follow Christ, the worst of the worst sinners that Jesus actually went out of his way to show mercy to them, to those who were the worst sinners of society, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, those who would just humble themselves to recognize that he is the savior and he went out of his way to show them mercy and bring them in. Whereas the Pharisees, those who tried to display a sense of religion, yet were just paying lip service, well, Jesus scolded them and resisted them. So for those who claim to follow Christ, or for those communities who profess to be Christian churches, yet who do not walk in obedience to him, nor give their whole hearts in devotion. They are intolerable to Jesus because they are hypocrites. This is what God has always been dealing with with his people. You might remember Isaiah 29 and God is dealing with his people Israel. And he says, these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, yet their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Their hearts are so far from me. They want to seem like they're following me, but they're not. And so here, this is Jesus basically saying back to the church of Laodicea, those who have not taken up their cross, you are not following me. This is the reality. And this idea of being hot or cold isn't actually different levels of Christianity. Like some people have said like, well, here, Jesus would actually prefer you to be dead against him and just cold than being lukewarm. But it's actually not the case. The dichotomy we should see here is hot and cold together and then lukewarm is something you do not want to be. And the key to understanding this is actually based on Laodicea's history as a city, as a town. See, around the city of Laodicea was the hot springs of a, a town called Hierapolis, where they would have hot waters and they would actually be used for a medicinal effect. So they were a healing kind of water. And then elsewhere next to Laodicea was the town of Colossae, which had cold, pure drinking water, which was life-giving. So you had hot springs, hot water, and then uh, life-giving, pure, cold drinking water. Whereas Laodicea historically had a, a subpar water supply. So their water source was actually lukewarm and it was nauseating. It actually caused people to be sick. And so the people of Laodicea would have recognized this rebuke that Jesus is saying here. You make me sick just like the lukewarm water that you get that you can't actually drink without throwing up. That's, that's what you're doing to me. Lukewarm here is symbolic of wanting to have your, key, your, your cake, wanting to have your cake and eat it too. Wanting to profess Christ, but not wanting to give up your life. And you end up with nothing and being good for nothing, similar to what Jesus says about if you lose your salt and you're good for nothing, worse than manure. So this is what it means to be lukewarm. It is to be deceived. It is to be unfaithful. And ultimately, it's to be an apostate church, which is out of fellowship with Christ, which is why we read at the end, Jesus is standing there knocking at the door. He's saying, hey, I'm not even in fellowship with you guys. I'm at the door. If you want to come in and dine with me, but right now I'm not in your midst. I'm not in the gathering. I'm outside. So this is quite serious. The second 
question, what does this look like? So that's, that's this idea of being lukewarm. But what does this look like practically in our lives? If we read in verse 17, the Laodicean church is described as saying, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But Jesus says, wrong, you're wretched, poor, pitiable, or pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So they are so unspiritual and off track that they think they're doing perfectly fine. They're like, we've got it going on. We're doing great. We don't actually need anything. The city of Laodicea was quite a prosperous city. They actually had many trade guilds that brought economic prosperity. They were particularly known for their banking. They had a successful textile business which made the softest wool and they produced specific eye salve for healing. So this is quite ironic when Jesus basically says to them, though you're prosperous, you're spiritually poor. Though you produce eye salve, you're so blind that you can't even see your poverty. And though you produce wool for garments, you are spiritually naked. You're not clothed. These people had clearly compromised on so many levels of faithfulness that they had now chosen the way of the world over the way of Christ. They had chosen to follow worldly prosperity and comfort and it cost them their fellowship with Christ. So what does this look like for us in the 21st century? What might be the warning signs of being lukewarm? And I think firstly, we should all be greatly warned because if you haven't noticed, Canberra and Australia is a particularly affluent area. It's a particularly prosperous country in Canberra itself. A lot of government workers, very prosperous. So we should be warned by this. And we often get historical and global amnesia with this. So what I mean by that is we often only ever see the world our lives and even Christianity through the lens of just modern 21st century Western glasses. We forget historically that in the scheme of world history and even right now in the majority world, which is basically everywhere other than the Western world, places like South America and Africa, we forget that it is not normal for the vast majority of the country's population to have disposable income. That's not a normal thing historically and in the majority world. It's not normal for the vast majority of people to have disposable income to uh, access free healthcare and go on holidays to get an education. That's not normal. It's not normal in the majority world now and it wasn't normal throughout the scheme of world history. And because of this, because of this fact, we get easily lured into the same trap of the Laodiceans, an economically prosperous environment where we don't need to pray for our daily bread because we'll just go down to Woolworths and get it. Those from Adelaide, you know, if you've come to Canberra, Woolworths is actually open until nine o'clock on weekends. So it's pretty easy for us to actually go down and get our bread. But because we're in such an affluent area, we don't actually understand that there are the vast majority of Christians when they're praying that prayer for my daily bread. It's literally, will we have bread to eat tomorrow? Lord, please grant us food. We don't 
need to regularly gather in prayer. We don't have a longing to gather in prayer with our brothers and sisters because that deep spiritual need for communion becomes numbed because we have vicarious communion with characters from TV shows and social media figures. And that desperate need for communion is actually numbed by that. We don't recognize that our spiritual poverty and desperate need for salvation in Christ, we don't actually realize that. We don't feel that desperate need for him because we massage these inherent desires that we have with just temporary materialistic things, new clothes, new experience. We just buy what we need. Our affluent lifestyle leads to apathetic spirituality. And so allowing yourself to be taken captive by affluence and apathy is a recipe for dangerous self-sufficiency, which ends up being outside of fellowship with Christ. Listen to what they say in this. I'm rich, I've prospered, I have need of nothing. Is this not the underlying narrative of today's society? We don't need God, we don't need religion. We are self-sufficient, we have no need. And that way of thinking isn't just the problem out there. It's the problem in here, in the visible church. As we see from Laodicea, self-sufficiency has crept its way into lives of professing Christians from the early church. And so this leads us now to our final question on this. We've seen what lukewarm means. We've seen how this might look in our lives, this idea of self-sufficiency that actually neglects our deep need for Christ. Now, how do we respond to Jesus's call to be hot or cold? So this is kind of like, what does it look like to be a faithful Christian rather than a pseudo Christian, a fake Christian? From verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love are a proven discipline. So be zealous and repent. So this call to purchase true gold, white garments, salve, the, the, the call to be zealous and repent is the call to reject self-sufficiency. That's the call to reject self-sufficiency. And to reject self-sufficiency is to come to the place where you recognize your complete inability to sustain yourself and your utter need for Christ. I wonder you who would profess to follow Christ, how often, how often do you cry out to your father? Like, I mean, really, really cry out to your father. Have you done that? Do you have an appetite for God's word? Is there an appetite? Is there a hunger? Is there an appetite for the type of Christian community which exists around word and prayer? It's not just community. We often, as Christians, kind of try and hold this monopoly on community, but the reality is that community is just a human thing. Every human can form great community. I was part of many sports teams growing up that were not Christian. I was not a Christian, and there was a great sense of community. But the Christian community is different. Perhaps a question to ask is if no one ever mentions the name of Jesus in your community, is it really a Christian community? You could do that with anyone. So I wonder if you have, if you have that 
longing for community, that appetite for God's word, a hunger for communal prayer. Being lukewarm means having a life that on surface level, it looks kind of Christian. You do kind of Christian things. You profess Christ, but mostly when it's comfortable for you to say it. You um, attend church somewhat regularly and to the world. And I can tell you spending the first 22 years of my life, not as a Christian, never coming across any Christians, that would have seemed like a very Christian thing to do, a very religious thing to do. But the reality is we're not judged according to the world's standards. We're judged according to Christ's standards. And he sets a pretty clear judgment here for those who would follow self-sufficiency. It's deadly. And I think one of the keys to this, the key to rejecting self-sufficiency is we have to realize how God is glorified through our brokenness and through our weakness. We have to see how God is actually glorified through our desperate need for him. God is, God is actually glorified in us when we in weakness and humility cry out to him. He is magnified in that. It's not as if God is ever overwhelmed or burdened by too many prayers. He has an infinite capacity for taking our requests upon himself. In fact, he invites us because he says, I'm a refuge, pour out your hearts to me. This is really well demonstrated in Psalm 50, where God rebukes the people of Israel for bringing their sacrifices for just false religiosity. And he says to them, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Saying like, I don't, I don't need your fake religiosity. I don't need your service to me. I'm God. I set the planets into orbit. I raise the dead. I'm self-sufficient. You're not. And he goes on in that. He goes on in Psalm 50 to say, here's what I want you to do. Sacrifice thank offerings to me. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's what he says. Just call on me in the day of trouble and I'm going to come through because I'm a father who will provide all of your needs and you will glorify me. The broken and contrite spirit, which God doesn't despise. That's the kind of thing that magnifies him. When we have a posture where we just say, where else would I go than to my father for everything, no matter how seemingly insignificant or significant, of course, I'm going to go and ask my father to help me. Where else would I go? Because he is God. And that actually magnifies him. That actually demonstrates his worth. When we reject self-sufficiency, we do so because we realize our utter helplessness apart from Christ and we see his supreme worth in every aspect of our lives. So not only do we have to see our helplessness and our complete inability, but we must see his supreme worth, his supremacy. This is another aspect of it. This topic is something that Paul covers in his letter to the Colossians, and it mustn't be a coincidence that the town of Colossae, which is where we get the letter to the Colossians, was only six miles from Laodicea. So it's likely that some of the same issues that were going on in Laodicea would have been going on 
in Colossae as well. And in the letter to the Colossian church, Paul is very clear to show the supremacy of Christ over every single thing. Colossians 1 from verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, thrones, rulers, dominions, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything, in all of these things, he may be preeminent. In all of these things, he may be supreme. He's supreme over everything. Christ is supreme. His worth is supremely more valuable than all of the money in the entire world, let alone those dollars that we so often cling to. He is more compassionate than all of the philanthropic heroes in all of history. He holds infinitely more power than all of the world's leaders combined. He is supreme. The list goes on and on. And I think to hold on, for us to hold on to self-sufficiency, for us not to have this posture of just crying out to our Father, of recognizing His worth, of recognizing how He's glorified in our brokenness, in us actually seeking Him, for us to hold on, to self-sufficiency is kind of like you being in the Arctic in the middle of winter and you're trying to keep yourself warm by lighting this single measly match when just a few hundred meters away there is a roaring fireplace with a seat right in front of it for those who would reject their way of self-sufficiency and just call upon the Father and sit under his warmth and under his light but so often we seem to just cling to these measly matches that we think are this fireplace. But in God's economy, it is never going to satisfy. And this path of rejecting self-sufficiency and following Christ wholeheartedly is not easy. It requires tremendous discipline. And that's why we're called disciples. That's why the words are connected. A disciple is someone who is disciplined. And it's why Jesus says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. God's discipline is actually meant to kill our self-sufficiency. And in order to bring us to the point of trusting in him, God must actually bring about circumstances in our lives to kill self-sufficiency. He has to bring about circumstances in our lives that cause us to trust in him. I know um, for Jasmine and I, when we first had Eliora, our daughter, and we would both be unashamed to say that the first four or five weeks were by far the hardest, most depressing weeks of our lives, probably for various reasons. Like it was um, May of last year, so kind of in just as things were shutting down in the country, we'd come back from Edinburgh, we had to do our quarantine. And by the time our quarantine finished, everything was shut down. So we just stayed in home for another few months. And then we had Eliora and then we went back in the middle of winter and we had this crying baby. We were just thrown into the deep end as every parent is. And to be honest, it was really depressing. It was really difficult. And I remember one specific time when, uh, Eliora had been crying all night and I'd been walking up and down the hallway with her from like 1 until 3 a.m. And um, finally, I put her down at 3 a.m. 
I got into bed and I don't know how, it might've been like five minutes, it might've been 20 minutes. But then all of a sudden I heard this piercing beeping sound because our smoke alarm, after the 10 years, it was a 10 year battery and the end of its 10 year life ended at like 3.30 in the morning then. And it started every 60 seconds through this piercing beeping sound. And I think Eliora woke up, I can't even remember, but I remember trying to fix it. There's no way if you've had a lithium 10 year smoke alarm, you have to get someone to come out and disconnect it. And I didn't really know that. And I just remember being starfish on my study floor, looking up to the ceiling, just honestly feeling like a failure as a father and a husband. My daughter has just been crying all night, finally put her down, this smoke alarm goes off. And it was terrible, like it was a terrible time. It seems kind of funny, maybe because all I can do is laugh about it now, but I, I distinctly remember a moment like that. Never have I cried out to my father than a time like that. And I remember just saying, God, I have nothing left. I mean, I just, I, I, I felt like Elijah on the mountain, just saying, Lord, just take me home. Just let me die. It was a bit dramatic, but, but it was a really, I mean, sleep deprivation is a serious thing and it was a, a really difficult time. But that circumstance actually drove me deeper to my father and I trust that his grace was sufficient to sustain me and to sustain my wife and to sustain Eliora. And we did get through that. It was extremely difficult, but that was good discipline. And very often for us, we don't have that opportunity. We don't have the opportunity to cry out to our father because our circumstances in this affluent culture never actually dictate that we have to trust in God alone. You know, we have our insurance, we have our health care, our savings, we have our plan B's and C's. We kind of like to think that we're crying out, but we never actually get to the end of ourselves in this affluent society. But as a loving father, God desires that we are stretched so that we loose our grip of self-sufficiency. And this is a tremendously comforting aspect of the Christian life, that because we know we have a loving father who is sovereign over all of our circumstances, works all things according to the counsel of his will, because we know that and because we know that he disciplines those he loves, then we can accept every circumstance that comes our way, regardless of how terrible it is, the death of loved ones, cancer, homelessness, whatever it is, we can accept as a means by which our Father, like we read in the Catechism, will somehow work together for good. He will work it together for good to train us in discipline. That's why in Hebrews 12, the author says, endure suffering as discipline. Just treat it as discipline. You will grow. And that's why James says, consider all joy when trials of any kind come your way. That's a beautiful comfort we can have. And what goes hand in hand with our call to discipline is the call to be zealous. And this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be emotionally ecstatic. Some people might say, well, I'm just not an emotional kind of guy. But I think the, the reality is like, hey, sit men in front of a TV watching football. They get very emotional. Most people can get very emotional. It just depends on what you're passionate about. But that's beside the point. The call here to be zealous is really the call to be earnest, to be serious, 
Following Christ is not a walk in the park. I think this is kind of like another elephant in the room of modern Christianity, this idea that following Christ is easy. We just kind of meet on a Sunday and, you know, you're broken, I'm broken, it's all good. We'll just, we're just fine together in community. It's, it's warfare, it's spiritual warfare. That's why we're told in Ephesians 6 to have our armor. It's actually incredibly difficult. Yes, we have God's grace to strengthen us through that, but it is difficult. And so what this means is that we have to be intentional. We have to be intentional about gathering together, not forsaking the gathering together, as some have, as it says in Hebrews 10, 24. We have to be intentional about daily reading, about saturating ourselves in the word of God. We have to be intentional about witnessing, about sharing. And you may not feel ecstatic about this, but the reality is this is about faithfulness. So there is an element to the Christian life. There's a part of Christian maturity where faithfulness is to do what you know is right, whether you feel like it or not. That's just Christian maturity, kind of adulthood, to just follow God's word, whether you feel like it or not, but trust that actually in line with his commands, there is your delight. Maybe it'll lag, but it will come. That's the way we were made so to be hot or cold, just as I summarize this now, to be hot or cold as Christ desires is to reject self-sufficiency, is to have a heart of dependence upon Christ and actually to know that God is glorified in our broken dependence upon him, to see him as supreme over all things and to trust that our loving father will use our circumstances to discipline us for our good and his glory, to trust that. And just as I finish now, there are two responses from this. Two responses from this letter here. So the uh, first response that we have here is more of an invitation. And so this is taking uh, the concluding words that Jesus gives from verse 20 to 22. And he gives a bit of an invitation and the picture here, when he says, I stand at the door and knock, it's, as I said, that idea of actually being out of fellowship with Jesus. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. It's this idea of end time fellowship. It's this idea of the intimate, like the marriage supper of the lamb that we read about in Revelation, this beautiful meal that we will share and a meal in the ancient Near East and even in Greco-Roman culture was always symbolic of intimate fellowship. It was uh, uh, you were actually family brought to the table. And this is what Jesus is inviting those to, uh, to come to. But the startling reality of this is that those who he is inviting are outside of fellowship with him. And so it may be you today realizing that you're actually not in fellowship with Christ. Perhaps your life has demonstrated much more similarity to being lukewarm than to being hot or cold. But the beautiful thing about this that demonstrates the immeasurable mercy of God in Christ is even when he describes these people as being repugnant to him, there is still an invitation. There's still an invitation. 
Come, come and enter. Come into my presence. I will wash you clean. Yes, you make me sick now, but I've, I've actually come and I've taken your sin upon me as far as the east is from the west removed your transgressions from you. Therefore, this invitation is here for all those who would repent of that sin and turn to me. There, there may be a second aspect of this for you who are a Christian, um, but perhaps you've lapsed into spiritual laziness. And I would just take this as a reminder if you've been convicted in any way, not to lack assurance of your salvation, but perhaps just to reposition yourself and reorient yourself back under this savior who invites you at his feet to eat with him to worship him to enjoy his presence the second response here is more of a challenge for we who would call ourselves christians this church the challenge is to bear witness see the the introductions that jesus gives in all of these letters, he introduces himself in different ways to all of the churches. And they're all generally, his introduction is both taken from elsewhere in scripture, but it's also related to the challenge that he then gives to that church. So Jesus introduces himself to the church of Laodicea as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, beginning of God's creation. So Jesus is the Amen, which means the truth. The confirmation that's why we say amen at the end of something or when jesus was in his earthly ministry he would go around saying truly truly i say to you and the word in the original language is amen 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 i say to you so it's the verification it's like the veracity check so jesus is the amen the truth of god which makes sense because we know elsewhere he is the image of the invisible God. It's why he says to Philip, Philip, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I'm the truth, I'm the witness of God, I'm God himself. So that's how Jesus introduces himself, the, the veracity check of God the Father. It's actually God the Father coming into human history, touching this earth and saying, I am here. I'm not some distant God, I'm here. I'm the truth, come, come to me. And we, we know we were made in the image of God. An image is meant to reflect whatever the image of it is. And we are being restored into the image of God that we lost through sin, yet Christ restored. We are being restored into the image of God and therefore we are meant to be faithful witnesses for God. That's why we're told to witness. And that's why Jesus here introduces himself as the faithful and true witness. This is all about how we are witnessing to God. The church should reflect God's loving kindness. We should reflect the truth. We should bear witness in both word and deed. And the church of Laodicea, as a result of their being lukewarm, were in no way giving a true and faithful witness. They were giving a false witness. They were not symbolic of God. They were not actually demonstrating his love and his care and demonstrating the truth. And so the challenge to us today to ask is, are we giving a true and faithful witness in 
your life individually, are you giving a true and faithful witness to the God of heaven and earth? Are you sharing faithfully? Are you stewarding your time and resources well in your workplace, in your neighborhood? Are we as a community witnessing faithfully? This is the challenge to us. And just as we now prepare our hearts to take uh, the Lord's Supper in response to this, I want to give us, uh, as we always do, a moment to just stop and reflect upon what we have heard today, this reality of um, the dangers of self-sufficiency, examining your heart to just ask those questions. Have I actually cried out to my father? Do I consider him a father or, or more like that, you know, weird distant friend that can come through when I need. So I'll just kind of call them when something comes up. Is God like your cosmic genie that you rub when you want something? Or is he your father who you are so dependent upon through Christ for everything?